Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. You can have two people who have no physical ability, who have no strength, and if one of them comes up to the other one and, like, you know, grabs them by the ear and doesn't actually tug but just holds the ear, as long as the person with the ear starts going, ah, ah, oh, God, it hurts so much, then everyone assumes that their ear is being mauled, you know? It's all it takes is one person who's willing to show weakness and to show what their their secret face looks like when they're crying, when they're in pain. You know, that's not something we teach straight cis men to do. And yet in wrestling, it's the essential ingredient. St. Louisans have had a deep connection with professional wrestling for decades, flocking to arenas big and small to witness larger-than-life characters battle it out in the ring. The WWE is the top attraction today, but it didn't always used to be this way. Author Abraham Josephine Reisman's new book, Ringmaster, chronicles how WWE Executive Chairman Vince McMahon Jr. rapidly expanded his wrestling empire in the 1980s. Her book also touches on how St. Louis played a key role in McMahon's ascent to the present day, where the WWE is easily the top professional wrestling company in the world. Reisman recently spoke with St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum about McMahon's rise to power. He started their conversation by asking Reisman how she would describe professional wrestling in America before Vince McMahon began his aggressive expansion of the WWE. So pro wrestling um, emerges as an independent entertainment around the turn of the 20th century, late 19th into the early 20th century. It happens somewhat gradually, but initially it was an offshoot of carnivals and the growing, in, the growing industry of uh, organized sports. Um, initially, there was real wrestling, like legitimate wrestling, where there is not a predetermined winner um, and it's just two guys grappling, that wrestling continues to exist as so-called amateur or Olympic or collegiate wrestling. And you can see that, you know, in athletic competitions, but it's not nearly as popular as its little cousin, not so little, I guess, um, pro wrestling. And pro wrestling is a theatrical storytelling form. It's an art form. It's not a sport. You know, before we go any further, it's good to just get that out of the way because a lot of people are still operating under the assumption, uh, these are outsiders, of course, you know, people who don't watch wrestling are still operating on the assumption that wrestling fans think wrestling is real. So um, this theatrical art form in which people enter a ring that looks like a boxing ring and basically pretend to have a fight and the fight is mostly choreographed, sometimes partially improvised, and the victor is predetermined. It's all part of a larger storyline. Um, and that's, that's wrestling. And wrestling as an industry, uh, before Mr. McMahon, before Vince McMahon decided to become an expansionist with his World Wrestling Federation, wrestling was a regional business. It was, it was local. 
uh, you were a wrestler and you would wrestle in a territory which was usually pretty geographically confined to one part of the United States or Canada. Um, there would be a promoter who was your boss at that regional territory. And that promoter would basically control your life. The only real recourse you had against that promoter would be to go to another promotion, which was an option, you know. And before Vince, when there were lots of games in town, if something wasn't working out for you, you could be a journeyman and just go to the next territory. Um, but then Vince emerges and... In the mid-1980s, right after he gains control of his father's wrestling company, the World Wrestling Federation, he decides that he wants to go national. He wants to break up the old system. And uh, boy, did he. Boy, did he ever. Um, before we get to that, specifically in St. Louis, I talked with my dad, who grew up in St. <laughs> Louis County, okay? Yeah. And before I was going to do this interview, and he told me that both he and my grandpa obsessively watched Wrestling at the Chase, which for our listeners who don't know what that was, it was a National Wrestling Alliance aligned show that aired on KPLR. And it was described as like one of the most popular television shows in St. Louis for decades. Oh, yeah. yeah. Why, yeah. Do you, why do you think these types of shows, especially that show, was able to gain such mass popularity? Wrestling is a quintessentially... American art form, and Americans respond to it very robustly. Um, St. Louis is is no exception. Uh, St. Louis was the heart of the National Wrestling Alliance, which was the cartel, you can call it a loose oligarchy or confederacy, of, of wrestling promoters from the regional territories. They would put their heads together at annual conferences and essentially just collude, you know, it was closer to democracy than what we have now, but it wasn't democracy. It was an oligopoly. You know, it was a small group of people controlling a lot of other people. And it, it, was, it, was, like, it was like Magna Carta, you know? It's like this, this institution that sets up some degree of checks on each other's power, but it's still not in any way a democracy. But... The NWA was a beloved institution by many, or at least it was uh, an institution that held up their beloved art form, which was wrestling. And it's hard to describe why people get into wrestling. You can come into it from multiple angles. You know, broadly speaking, I say people tend to come to wrestling either having been sports fans or they come to wrestling having been theater fans, you know? Musical theater was my entry point for wrestling in a lot of ways. And they felt intertwined to me. I was already into musical theater. And then I started watching wrestling and I thought this is a lot of the same principles. You know, people really like ostentatious performances where human emotions and human problems and human victories are projected into uh, an enormous spectacle. That kind of theatrical storytelling has a lot of power. And wrestling is very good at pushing your buttons, more so than regular sports and more so than a lot of entertainment entities, because it's characters, you know? You don't have to manufacture the narrative from real life as difficultly as you would with sports. You just say, this character is gonna be repugnant and this character is gonna be heroic. 
and let's do everything we can to get the audience to feel the way we want them to feel. It's a very powerful magic, this wrestling magic, this ability to make people forget what they know to be true, believe in things that seem absurd, and generally lose yourself in this set of physical tales about the human spirit. One of the key parts of your book is detailing how Vince McMahon Jr., as I mentioned kind of on the outset, went on an aggressive campaign to decimate these regional wrestling promotions. And you even detail how he sought to muscle out the company that had St. Louis as a territory. Talk about what happened and what the impact was, especially on some random dude that, you know, I think his name is Hulk Hogan or something <laughs> like that. The St. Louis territory was called the St. Louis Wrestling Club, and it was run by Sam Muchnick. Sam Muchnick was a legendary wrestling promoter, and basically until last week when Ari Emanuel bought uh, WWE in this merger, and Vince McMahon became, you know, subordinate to WWE, uh, to, to Ari Emanuel, rather. Um, Sam Muchnick was the most powerful Jewish person in the history of wrestling in America. Um, I'm Jewish, and I find that fascinating. Sam Muchnick was a much-beloved and even-tempered promoter of both the St. Louis Wrestling Club and also of the National Wrestling Alliance. And when Sam Muchnick stepped down as the uh, the president of the National Wrestling Alliance, it was kind of a titanic event and in many ways set the stage for Vince's triumphs because there was no longer a beloved Potter familius in the room at these NWA meetings who could kind of turn down the temperature. And then all of a sudden you have the rise of cable television and then the rise of Vince McMahon and those two factors were extremely disruptive for wrestling. But speaking of that disruption, you know, what you see after Vince takes control in 1983 is he starts muscling in on other territories, including St. Louis. He cut a deal with KPLR, which was the station that aired um, Wrestling at the Chase, which was a massively popular local or regional television program. He signs a deal with KPLR and basically just cuts <laughs> cuts the original regional promotion, the St. Louis Resident Club, out of the deal. They they no longer have the hegemony that they had in their own region. And Vince starts doing shows in St. Louis, which was very against the rules. Doing a show in someone else's territory, unheard of. And Vince did it over and over again. And the St. Louis Wrestling Club was indeed uh, a casualty of that, of that campaign. If you've just tuned in, we're listening to St. Louis Public Radio correspondent Jason Rosenbaum's conversation with author Abraham Josephine Reisman about her new book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. There, there's a lot of, like, reverence toward 1980s-era WWF. Like, people yes. who are my age, I'm 38, um, seem to have fond memories of Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, the Macho Man, to some extent the Ultimate Warrior, especially when he was doing promos about, like, Hulk Hogan cl crashing the plane, which, you know. Oh, yeah. You point out in your book that at the time people thought WWF, especially, like, wrestling purists, was just 
the worst thing to ever happen to pro yeah, wrestling. Yeah, that's the amazing thing. Vince has rewritten wrestling history because he owns wrestling history. Like, he owns the tape libraries and the copyrights for all of the companies that he put out of business that he bought, you know? He, he has the history of wrestling in the palm of his hands, and he has manipulated it. So WWE has managed to be the main storyteller for its own tale. <laughs> and the story that Vince always tells is the 80s were kind of a golden age, you know, this beautiful time when the wrestlers were gigantic and their hearts were even bigger and everything was sweet and wonderful. Well, that's not how it was or at least not how it was perceived by diehards of wrestling prior to that. You know, Vince has this advantage in that he brought in this whole new audience in the 80s who then grew up and had no reference point for what else wrestling could be, you know? So for them, wrestling really does begin in this golden age of the 80s. But there was an existing wrestling market. And if you read the newsletters, if you read the, you know, editorials, from back then, from fans, you will find that they really were not happy about what WWF was doing because WWF was providing a product that even before it outright claimed, hey, this is all fake, don't worry about it, was pushing the envelope towards that revelation of fakeness. And it's really hard to overstate how nervous this made everybody, how deeply anxious this made everyone who loved wrestling and who worked in wrestling. Because the one code of wrestling is a three-word long code. It's protect the business. And for understandable reasons, people assumed that if you broke the you know, century-long oath to the audience that what they were seeing was real, if you broke that oath and admitted to them that it was fake, it would be the end of the industry. And that's what Vince was essentially doing, was even before he outright said wrestling was fake, his product was was so much more ridiculous and and non-believable than his rivals that it seemed like well no one's going to buy this you know no one's going to no one's going to keep watching because who cares if you if if you know people won't care if they think that it's fake now the thing is this ended up being a true prophecy you know once vince kills the illusion that wrestling is real in the late 1980s, um, like outright kills it, as opposed to just really strongly hinting at it, wrestling really suffers. You know, for the first years of the 1990s, wrestling is in a bad place. And I would contend that the biggest ingredient in that was the end of that so-called, you know, kayfabe. Kayfabe was the word that was used to describe that system of lying about things being real in the ring. So once he destroys kayfabe, there's a lot of gas that just gets siphoned out of the car and it can't go very far. Let's do a thought experiment here. Let's say that the person that did the same thing Vince McMahon did, which is basically wreck the territorial system, was actually a decent person with very good morals. And a Sam Muchnick. A Sam Muchnick. Sam Muchnick did it. Would that have actually been a good thing long term? Or do you think having the regional system in place was better than having a homogenous mo monopolistic company. Oh God, I, I am such, it's such a pick bad or worse because the cartel system was not great. But I do think there is something to be said, a lot to be said for 
the idea of having a decentralized or at least variegated um, approach to a wrestling industry. You know, a monopoly, or in this case, as we have now, kind of a mon and a half a poly that didn't really work as a word, but you know, you have AEW, the rival to WWE, which is nowhere near the size of WWE, but is a little hipper, a lot hipper, in fact, um, and much more beloved by hardcore wrestling heads. Um, still, it's a close to monopoly system and that's bad for the product, you know? I stopped watching wrestling when WWF became a monopoly and I was not alone in that. You know, Vince buys uh, WCW in 2001 and also buys ECW, the much smaller third rival or second rival, you know, third company. And then the product really went downhill. He no longer had any competition. No one was keeping him on his toes. And he really dropped the ball. He will even tell you that. You know, WWE in its programming, in its so-called documentaries, very often WWE in its so-called quote-unquote documentaries will often present this narrative that the creative took a dive in 2001 because of the monopoly. No, they don't say because of the monopoly. They just say it was, you know, they took a dive and who knows why. And then they fixed it, you know, but that was a really rough time. And I think now is only marginally better, uh, at least for WWE. You know, you have a guy, Vince McMahon, who does not feel like there is anybody who really is his equal in wrestling. And he doesn't really have to answer to anybody. He, at least, well, now he has to answer to Ari Emanuel, but he doesn't have to answer to anybody else in wrestling, you know? And I do think there is a lot to be said for a regional system, or at least a system with many players. So if for no other reason, then it, it's good for the labor market because the workers, the, the wrestlers should have opportunities to go elsewhere and get different treatment. Right now, WWE and AEW are the only big time games in the, in the system. And neither one of them are terribly nice to their workers. So you published a really well done and beautiful op-ed for Polygon entitled, Wrestling Turned Me Cis, Then It Turned Me Trans. And I don't want to spoil the article. I want people to read it for themselves. <laughs> but you discuss you. how wrestling, despite having um, a lot of really like transphobic and racist and sexist overtones, is actually, quote, transgressive and even queer. Um, can you talk more about that concept? Because Absolutely. it made me rethink how I think about pro wrestling when you wrote that. Sure. I'd love it if people read the essay and I like what you said. I'm not going to spoiler all of it, but I will spoiler one key conclusion I came to, which was watching wrestling as an adult with my wonderful spouse, the journal and editor, journalist and editor um, S.I. Rosenbaum, who is much smarter about queer things than I am. You and know, we're, we, are, we are not related, by the way. I, oh, sorry, I, not I, related. I just want to make that clear. A lot of Rosenbaums out there. But um, we would watch wrestling for my research, and she was the one who really started to open my eyes to how uh, queer and transgressive it could be. Beneath the surface, you know, the surface level text is often very misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic. But when you look beneath what is being explicitly said, you find something that's very appealing for queer people because it's very 
um, much not what straight cis men are supposed to do. You know, what wrestlers do in the ring is very unconventional for men, for cis straight men. And the one thing that I will emphasize is the essence of a pro wrestling match is not strength, it's weakness. The ability to project and ex exaggerate pain and weakness and fallibility is how you make a wrestling match work. You can have two people who have no physical ability, who have no strength, and if one of them comes up to the other one and like, you know, grabs them by the ear and doesn't actually tug, but just holds the ear, as long as the person with the ear starts going, ah, ah, oh God, it hurts so much, then everyone assumes that their ear is being mauled, you know? It's all it takes is one person who's willing to show weakness and to show what their, their secret face looks like when they're crying, when they're in pain. You know, that's not something we teach straight cis men to do. And yet in wrestling, it's the essential ingredient. So your book has been a big success, and you are now New York Times bestselling author Abraham Josephine Reisman. Um, does the success of a book written by a Harvard-educated transgender woman prove <laughs> that the audience for pro wrestling is more open-minded than people may assume? I don't know. Read my Amazon reviews. I've got a lot of positive ones, but there are a whole lot of one-star reviews from people who are pretty dissatisfied that a transgender woman is writing an explicitly anarchist book um, about pro wrestling. <laughs> you know, it's there's a lot of people who like it, like the book. I'm very gratified that it has sold as well as it has and has been received as well as it has. But there's still a lot of wrestling fans who are not comfortable with a Harvard-educated transgender anarchist woman writing about pro wrestling and writing about Vince McMahon. So I'm not taking it as a downer at all. I think the success of the book shows that there's a huge market for people who care about wrestling and also care about trans rights, but it's not everybody, you know? I get a lot of, you know, three follower Twitter accounts popping into my timeline just to tell me horrible transphobic things. So, you know, it still happens, but I, I've been very gratified that a lot of wrestling fans have been with me, including a lot of queer and trans wrestling fans. You know, the most moving moment of this book release so far has been last week when I was at the launch event for the book and a trans fan of mine who I, I was not actually friends with yet. Now we're friends because of this, but they just walked up to me and said, thank you for writing about wrestling from a trans perspective, it really means a lot to me. And I just burst into tears. You know, I was not expecting that and it was really nice to hear. And I, I really do hope that this helps expand people's conceptions of what a wrestling fan can be and what wrestling can be. That's author Abraham Josephine Reisman talking with St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum about her new book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? 
suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations, and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.